Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, March 6th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone's getting a chance to enjoy the warm weather that we're seeing around the state to start the week. I'm definitely getting excited to get outside and to start prepping our yard for spring. I love that time of year. But regardless, that weather change comes as we head into the final two weeks of the 2023 legislative session. Bills are starting to make it through committees and chambers with a lot of other legislation stuck in limbo, either tabled or waited to be voted on. This week on the podcast, I'll update several pieces of legislation we've been following here at New Mexico in Focus, and we'll hear some insight from two doctors and a lawmaker on the state's shortage of medical professionals. Then, Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel discuss the proposal to expand Medicaid coverage around the state and the governor's decision to pause the process that the state goes through to select Medicaid providers. After that, the panel talks education, as Mississippi starts to show major progress in reading while New Mexico continues to struggle. And we'll end the podcast today with a conversation between Gene and UNM Law Professor Sonia Gibson-Rankin, who shares some interesting insights on the intersections of artificial intelligence, race, and the law. For now, let's get to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. The House Taxation and Revenue Committee has voted to pass an omnibus tax bill that includes a small increase in statewide alcohol taxes. This is something that we've been covering for months, mainly due to the work of journalist Ted Alcorn and New Mexico In-Depth, who we've collaborated with. Included in that wide-ranging tax bill is a 15 cent per gallon tax increase on alcohol. According to reporting from Mr. Alcorn, Representative Joanne Ferrari, who was the sponsor of the now-tabled House Bill 230, attributed the tiny increase to an error in drafting. She said it was meant to be 15 cents per drink of alcohol, regardless of type. Instead, the draft increases taxes 15 cents per gallon of beer and per liter of wine and spirits. That works out to a little over a penny per drink in some cases. I've included a link to the bill in the description of this episode of the podcast. And you can also find a recent story published in New Mexico In-Depth that adds some context on the influence of the alcohol lobby in New Mexico. The State House has passed a plan that would ask voters to end New Mexico's status as the only state without a salaried legislature. The plan was voted through largely on the backs of Democrats. Right now, members of the legislature receive per diem during sessions and for meetings. Members also receive mileage reimbursements and can participate in a retirement plan, but they are not paid specifically for their legislative work. The measure will go before voters next year if the Senate agrees to the plan. Session ends March 18th. A bill aiming to make it a crime if a child is allowed access to a firearm in a home is headed back to the State House after being voted through the Senate. The bill from Democratic sponsors, including State Representative Pamela Herndon and Senate President Pro Tem Mimi Stewart, advanced on a 24 to 16 party line vote. Under the bill, criminal charges could be brought if a minor is allowed access to a firearm in a home and then brandishes or displays the firearm in a threatening way or uses it to kill or injure someone. The proposal would establish both misdemeanor and felony crimes with a penalty of up to 18 months in prison. According to the CDC, New Mexico is among the top 10 states for firearm deaths. Going into the 2023 legislative session, we knew health care would be a major focus for our lawmakers. We've told you about House Bill 7, which would codify abortion rights in New Mexico and guarantee access to gender-affirming care anywhere in the state. The House passed the bill more than a week ago. 
It's since moved on to the Senate. There are also several other smaller measures targeting some of the factors contributing to New Mexico's growing shortage of medical professionals. New Mexico and Focus political correspondent Gwyneth Dolan went to the Roundhouse this week and spoke with two doctors and a lawmaker about how our state's malpractice policies are influencing the problem. Dr. Angie Bratton and Dr. Nancy Wright, thank you so much for talking to us today. Let me come to you first and say you are from Los Alamos, yes. which has like the highest percentage of people who make a ton of money. You would think in a, in a small community, a small service area like this, you should have all the resources you need to deliver health care, and yet you have a workforce shortage. Why? You know, our big problem is access for our patients. And our workforce shortage makes it very hard to take care of our patients. Um, people can't get in to see me for six months. Then I do see a patient, they often don't have a primary care doctor and they obviously have high blood pressure and diabetes that need to be taken care of. Uh, I also see patients that need neurologists and rheumatologists and I can't find anybody to see them to take care of their serious health problems. We have low Medicaid reimbursement rates here, but a high percentage of Medicaid patients in general in New Mexico. Uh, GRT, is that another problem? We have several financial problems in taking care of our patients that make it harder to do in New Mexico because of our public policies. One of those problems is that we do have a really high Medicaid patient population with low reimbursement. Another is that we're one of two states that require doctors to pay gross receipts tax on copays and deductibles. We cannot pass that on to patients, so that means that your copay, I have to pay some of that in for taxes. We also have some of the highest malpractice rates in all the surrounding states for buying our malpractice insurance. And we also are having trouble with um, recruiting people and that makes the workforce shortage makes us have harder longer days trying to get all the patients in it seems like you know we have six month wait but the fewer patients i see to try to give more care to each patient that's a longer wait on the other end we um, would love to be able to recruit more doctors but part of our problem is that we don't uh, repay stu uh, student loans at the same rate as surrounding states. Most medical students come out of medical school with a $240,000 debt, and our loan repayment is only $50,000 after working for two years here. Dr. Wright, you are in Las Vegas, New Mexico. It's a very different community. You've got a huge service area. Um, there's, they're less affluent. Um, you're a pediatrician and you work you know, as a team with OBGYNs in labor and delivery. We are seeing a national trend of labor and delivery units closing across the country. And, and this is the problem that you have had in Las Vegas too. How would changing malpractice rate, insurance rates, um, improve that? How could that improve that situation there? Well, in a, in a place like Las Vegas, it's a small community. We tend to be more poor. There's a lot more of our community members are covered under Medicaid. And it, it's, although pedi uh, pediatricians and OBs would like to move to a place like Las Vegas because it's a really nice place and I, I've been there for 21 years and, and I love it there. 
uh, it's very hard to be an obstetrician in a small community because if you're only one of one or two obstetricians and you have to be available at all times to tend to someone who is in labor. So you can't be very far from the hospital ever and it's hard to ask a doctor to do that. Plus, if, uh, if, if a, a patient has complications, if they deliver a baby who is very sick, then the uh, obstetrician and the pediatrician are much more likely to be sued for that. Um, it's very hard as a doctor to, to be sued. And it's very hard to stay in a place where you feel like you, there's a big target on you and so any baby that becomes sick on my service, whether or not it's my fault, I'm going to be sued for it. And that's a hard thing for, for doctors to, to work with. You have smaller facilities in Las Vegas, less specialized equipment and personnel there that's right. for those kinds of emergencies. Well, for something like a, a newborn, a sick newborn needs very specialized care. So neonatologists are pediatricians who've had extra training in dealing with critical newborns. And, and so they, that, that's all they do. They don't have offices that they see patients in the way that I do. Um, and there are also neonatal trained respiratory therapists. And there's special equipment that you need for critically ill patients. And in New Mexico, you only have those services at, in Albuquerque. And so in any hospital outside of Albuquerque, you really don't have those highly specialized services. And so if a sick baby is delivered at Alta Vista, and right now we don't have an obstetrician, but a baby can still be delivered there without an OB, so they're delivered in the emergency room, and then a pediatrician like me would have to come in and take care of this sick baby until it can be transported out to the intensive care unit. And this could be hours. I, I've spent 12 hours at the bedside of a very sick baby waiting for the transport team to come. And if that baby does not do well, then I'm the one who's sued, even though I'm the one who's really working very hard to keep this baby alive. It's a very difficult situation. It's impossible to get new doctors to, to Las Vegas. So we don't have obstetric services at all. So no babies are delivered in an official uh, labor and delivery unit. Um, and, and that deprives our community of a, a place to safely deliver a baby. It, it's a very critical situation. And I believe that obstetricians often pay uh, at least $100,000 a year for their malpractice insurance. And that means that they're having to work the first part of the year just to pay for malpractice. That doesn't pay for their staffs. That doesn't pay for the equipment that they need. It, it's, um, it's a money-losing proposition to deliver babies. Representative Thompson, you're a physical therapist. You are often up here working on healthcare-related issues. One of them is the proposal that would ban flavored tobaccos. And, and really what that means is fruit-flavored jewels and things like that, vapes. This is one thing that we know teenagers are still doing. How is that going? Um, I'm afraid it's not going to make it this year. It is really important. We, uh, we have a study that says that 34% of high schoolers are, are, tip, are normal vapors. And we know that 
I mean, I can't imagine a two pack a day smoker of 60 years is going to go get tutti frutti. Um, so what we're trying to do is prevent kids from ever starting because nicotine is an addiction. And Dr. Zadonis, who is um, at UNM, is an addictionologist and he presented to committee over the summer and said that tobacco, nicotine, is indeed the gateway drug to all other drugs. You are also working on prescription drugs. This is something everyone can identify with. What are you trying to do? Well, I'm trying to protect patients. Um, I have a bill to get diabetic supplies. Um, I have a bill to, to allow people to have the freedom to use their local pharmacy as opposed to a mail order pharmacy if the, the local pharmacy can meet the price of the mail order. And what part of the reason for that is in rural communities, of, if they have a pharmacy, that may be the only healthcare provider they have. We had a member here who, um, who was getting sicker and sicker. He was quite old and he went into his pharmacist and his pharmacist looked at him and said, whoa, we need to change some things. And then he, he got better. So, we, I mean, we cannot afford to lose any healthcare provider anywhere in the state. We have been talking today about the uh, provider shortage in New Mexico. We just talked to some doctors about malpractice rates. Um, what do we, what, how do we need to solve this problem? What do we need to do to address malpractice insurance rates here? Well, if, if I had that answer, I'd, I'd be very happy. I don't, I, but essentially for me, it's about the patients, you know. I mean, a $750,000 cap on an injury or a death is, it's just not enough. I mean, my own brother, six girls, one boy, the only brother, um, had a heart attack. And when he collapsed, he hit his head um, on a sink and then on the floor of the bathroom. And they only treated his heart. And all night long, I watched him essentially dying and kept asking the nurse, um, what about his head? What about his head? Because he had a baseball size knot on his head and they kept telling me we're watching it we're watching and to this day I feel guilty that I wasn't um, rowdier and demanding um, it was just a sad day so I, I know how it is to lose uh, someone you love or to have someone you love badly injured and the cost of their care through the rest of their lifetime can be in the millions so I, I'm all about patience I hope someone comes up with a plan for it but um, but patients need to come first as far as I'm concerned. This past week on the show, host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion panel discussed another health care bill in the legislature, House Bill 400, which would expand Medicaid eligibility around the state. Our panelists for the week are Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations, Martha Burke, author and host of the podcast Equal Time with Martha Burke, and Ed Perea, attorney and public safety analyst. Here's Gene. And nearly half the state is covered under the federal health program and elected officials in Santa Fe are considering approving a bill that would further expand New Mexico's Medicaid coverage. If House Bill 400 is approved, eligible residents who do not qualify for full Medicaid coverage and whose household income is 133% above the federal poverty level would be able to apply for low cost coverage. Now, under the bill, the state would also fund a two-year study on the proposed program's effects. Now, following that study, the program would be opened in 2026 for residents to enroll. Now, Martha, in a state that's already struggling to keep its doctors, we've talked about that at this table a lot, <laughs> is New Mexico ready for a Medicaid expansion? Let's just focus on docs here for a quick second. What's this do for the medical industry? I mean, it's great for the consumers, certainly. 
I see where the governor's going with this, well, but. it puts additional pressure on the medical community without question. And when you say great for the consumer, right. I'm not sure about that because it's hard right now. Call up, try to get an appointment right. with your PCP, so right. to speak, your primary care provider. Yep. Uh, yeah, you can have an appointment six weeks from now. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. But the other side of it is, what about the folks that can't get an appointment at all because they don't have the money to pay for one? Right. Uh, so it's a two-edged sword. As I understand uh, what we're talking about right now, it is not jumping into the expansion right away. It is just studying mm -hmm. about the possibilities, mm -hmm. good or bad. And as I think I've just pointed out, there are a couple of problems on either end. Right. So I'm glad to see that it's going to be studied first at least. Mm -hmm. Tom, I got, I got to ask this straight up. It, does this reopen a door for the estimated 85,000 New Mexicans who lost their Medicaid coverage in January? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a big deal. We talked about it at the table here too. That's a lot of people. Oh, it is a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And yes, it, it, this would provide a pathway forward for additional health care uh, or access to health care. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what kind of raises a question with me is, is this government pushing more government mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of government? Or is it using the 83, 80,000 know, plus people as a reason to mm -hmm. move it forward? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that it's okay because in essence, Medicaid is just insurance. Mm -hmm. And uh, Medicaid, you know, the insurance aspect will allow more people to get access. And all it does is really it distributes the focus from the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center and all the other county health programs mm -hmm. to the larger populace mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. So in essence, this really does relieve a lot of the, the stress that uh, UNMH currently sees. Mm -hmm. That's a good point there too. It's interesting, the different angles here when you get under the hood. Um, how can lawmakers, Ed, find a way to attract more medical practitioners if in fact the study goes through we want to do this in 2026. That's not that long from now. <laughs> I, 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 how do you, is it money? Is it, you know, how do you get around the Medicaid thing for a lot of docs that don't want to deal with this? And we have to be careful with the unintended, unintended consequences of this of this bill and this action, right? right? Because we are losing doctors. We are losing doctors for a whole variety of reasons. And a lot of it has to do with, with, with our insurance policies and, and that in which we require medical practitioners to have. We're right. losing that for that reason. Will we lose more to, as we continue to expand Medicaid. On the other hand, mm -hmm. is healthcare a right? Do we look at those people who are struggling and right. don't have access to healthcare? So we need to right. focus on them too. Right. I mean, and maybe this moves New Mexico maybe a little closer to this idea of universal healthcare for for everyone. I know nationally, you know, sure. that's, that's been worked on. Sure. Uh, but as it stands now, over 50% of New, Me New Mexicans are on Medicaid. 70% of all births in New Mexico are Medicaid. So we're we're getting real close to that anyway. So let's take a look at this and see how we can make it work for doctors yeah. and the consumer. I like the way you put that as a uh, point Ed just made. According to a 2022 study from research firm Perry Undum, half of New Mexicans, half guys, forego healthcare services because of cost. Half of us. That comes around, Tom, to haunt everyone. The system's going to end up with those people anyway at some level, mm -hmm. and that's going to uh, be a difficulty. Now, as lawmakers consider expanding future med Medicaid coverage, the governor's office has halted the state's procurement process for contracts to run the state's Medicaid program. The journal reports the governor's office is concerned about a possible disruption of services when contracts expire at the end of the year. So, Tom, the question remains, why would the governor's office choose to halt the state's procurement process 
if that's a concern. Yeah, and obviously only the governor's you know, office can speak to that. Truly. You know, Medicaid, when you look at it, where it fits into the big scheme of things, is that in order to provide broad-based statewide health care in the state, you have to have a part of the Medicaid pie, for lack right. of a better term. Mm -hmm. Without that piece of the pie, doing business in New Mexico and providing non-Medicaid services mm -hmm. is very difficult, still possible. We've, there have been some of the approved providers have been in that position before and That's they've right. done well, yeah. but they would really like that piece of Medicaid pie. Yep. So, you know, the fact that this was like pulled in the 11th hour and the amount of investment that has already gone in, I mean, this has this does not pass the optics. It does not pass the smell Still. test. Right. It doesn't right. pass a whole lot of stuff. And yeah. there should be a lot of protest, and I'm sure there will be. Yeah. Interesting point there. Uh, and Martha, let's get down to some names here. Uh, the current provider, Sky Community Care, was not included on the state's final list of recommended providers. I don't. None of us know why that is, because again, as Tom mentioned, we're not privy to those conversations. But Western Sky Community Care, a sub of Centene Corporation covers about 87,000 people, and they came in last out of the they five. Came, they came in last, <laughs> right. and what is interesting to me is that they canceled the request for proposal for everyone. Right. Is that a CYA thing? Right. Uh, because <laughs> they didn't want to single out Western Skies because they like them anyway? Mm -hmm. We don't know, but That's these right. are very valid questions to ask. This company had been under scrutiny and actually gotten fined. Hector Valderas mm -hmm. had fined them for several kinds of infractions. Right. But it seems like to me, the governor did not want to single them out, so she just canceled the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's bad for the people that need the services, right. first of all. Right. But as Tom says, the optics are horrible, the smell test is horrible, and we got to have some explanation, which to now has not been forthcoming. That's, that's a key point right there. A lot of this is, so, we talked about this before we started taping. It's such a mystery, Ed, a lot of this. We don't know what the marching orders are. We don't know the frustration, the pain points they may have had with over the years with these people. But we do know that Western Sky had to pay $13.7 million <laughs> under a settlement that Martha mentioned yes. with the state attorney general's office after an investigation uncovered abusive billing practices. I mean, $13 million, that's a lot of money. Should we have trust in this company you know, after that? It's just part of the game. You never know. It's eyebrow-raising. I mean, it really is a concern. And, you know, where's the oversight of this process? You know, right. who, who's, who's responsible for that? Right. And what is the procurement process? Is there someone taking a look at it to ensure that, every, that this doesn't happen again? That's right. Is it, I mean, is this problematic? Has it happened in the past, or is this a one-time thing? Mm -hmm. If it, you know, We want to avoid this from happening again because, as, as Tom alluded to earlier, it's quite expensive to just participate and prepare for an RFP. That's I mean, right. you're, you're talking right. a lot of dollars, and, and we don't want to discourage potential contractors from even participating if they don't trust the system. Right, exactly right. Hey guys, great conversation. Thanks again to the panel, as always. We know our state faces some unique roadblocks when it comes to healthcare, and the same goes for education. New Mexico remains at the bottom of many national education metrics, and for years, Mississippi was there with us. But that state has now shown some significant progress recently in reading, and that's raising questions in educational circles here in our state. Gene and our line opinion panelists explore some of the changes made in Mississippi and ask if they could work here in New Mexico. Now, time to welcome back our panelists. It might have been a backhanded phrase of appreciation, but it was one of those repeated 
in the state for years, quote, thank God for Mississippi, end quote. Now, for a long, what do I mean by that? For a long time, the Magnolia State had saved New Mexico from ranking last in reading and mathematics. But in recent years, Mississippi has pulled away from the land of enchantment, improving test scores of elementary students, according to a deep dive by the Albuquerque Journal last month that compared the two states. Now, Mississippi ranks 37th in fourth grade math and 34th in fourth grade reading proficiency. A former Mississippi State Superintendent of Education told the journal that the success in Mississippi happened after the state instituted training for elementary teachers to learn, quote, the science of reading, end quote. We're going to talk about that in a quick second. Lawmakers here took notice. In 2019, lawmakers passed legislation that mandated all New Mexico elementary teachers learn structured literacy. The program, Language Essentials for Teachers of Reading and Spelling, or LETRS, an acronym, currently has 6,000 educators enrolled and with 800 teachers who have already completed the course. Now, Tom, this program is only a few years along. Education leaders say it's too early to say uh, if the letters program will be successful, but are you hopeful even given what's happened in Mississippi? Let's just talk about those guys. I mean, we can't laugh at them anymore, certainly. They've had some good progress here. We should take note. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I'm a big believer in best practices. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what can we learn from Mississippi? You know, how did, they, how did the education system in Mississippi uh, complement the culture of Mississippi? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, taking some best practices as far as rigor as well mm -hmm. and applying them in New Mexico where appropriate, you know, just because something works well in Texas doesn't mean it's going to work well That's here right. That's right. and vice versa. That's right. So it's all, you know, it's all about cultural uh, relevancy. And I think it's also about, you know, really setting that, that mark uh, where it needs to be really high That's and then right. creating a way to achieve that. Boom, exactly. Ed, uh, comparing our state to Mississippi can be problematic in a few ways, especially <laughs> cultural differences, you know, but quite seriously, you know, we've got efforts here to preserve indigenous languages for children in our state. It's a much different deal here. So how should we look at this Mississippi thing? Should we feel badly about ourselves or just understand that we have different challenges here? We have a lot of challenges here that other states don't have. Well, we can't discard what Mississippi is doing. Obviously, mm -hmm. they're doing something right. But what I would be interested in, and I'm sure that the, the educators have looked into this, are what are the other 48 states doing? That, right. What is number one doing that's made them number one, right? right. We're focusing way too much on the tail end, but maybe we put a little more attention on the, on the front end. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, obviously we deal with some very specific uh, issues here that are that are unique to New Mexico, mm -hmm. and and I, I think that always has to be factored in. But we can't use it as as an excuse. That's right. Uh, I, That's again, right. I, I think that this is this is a this is a, a, a good beginning that we look at a success story mm -hmm. with a group that is often often ranked behind us. Right. But I don't think that that's enough. I think uh, yeah. we really need to st stay focused and, and look at the the uniqueness of our educational system that's and right. make the changes that need to be made in order to move up the way Mississippi has. That's right. You know, it's a point of interest, Martha, of course, you know, nearly 18% of New Mexico students speak English as a second language. And in fact, the journal quoted uh, Anja Rudiger, member of the Tribal Education Alliance, who questioned why we are comparing ourselves to Mississippi in the first place. It was a great quote here. Uh, quote, there's really not at all much in common, poverty rates obviously, but as a regard to specific assets that children bring to learning and all the cultural richness, I don't know that these comparisons bias that much. Would you agree with that? Well, I, th I suppose so. Yeah. Uh, I think more importantly, uh, the comparison is less important than where we are in the hierarchy to begin with. Right. And what I got out of this new initiative, I think is very important. It's ab not about 
teaching reading. It's about teaching the teachers how to teach reading. Right. And, you know, we, we have chronic teacher shortages in mm -hmm. many parts of the state. People are thrown into a classroom. Here's your classroom. Teach them to read. Mm -hmm. uh, if they did that for you, would you have any idea how to go about Zero. that? Neither would I. Yeah. Probably no one at this table would. So I think it's a very good step. Mm -hmm. I do think, and I think the journal pointed this out, it's going to take maybe two to four years mm -hmm. to see some really concrete results from this. But I think it's a positive move. And as I would say, forget Mississippi, concentrate on where New Mexico is and bringing ourselves up regardless of where we are unless mm -hmm. we're number one which we're a long way from right now. Well, that's a good point there. And Tom, I'm, I'm curious, how, how do we measure success here? Mm -hmm. uh, Martha makes a good point. Um, in the journal piece you mentioned, uh, Mississippi rolled out their initiative in 2014 and in 2019 actually saw their academic gains. That's not that much time. Mm -hmm. So how do we judge success here? That's always been a tough one. Yeah, I, you know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll you know, say that, you know, mm -hmm. instead of maybe going, you know, having a moonshot, why not just get to outer space? So sure. readjusting what, what that is, saying. you know, it's still a success. Yeah. You know, I think we've seen some of that already with respect to restructuring the number of credits that are needed for graduation. Mm. Uh, you know, New Mexico is one of 12 states right. uh, that require 24 credits, and there's a bill right now moving through the legislature that's mm -hmm. just reducing that to 22 credits. Yep. Uh, you know, making things like Algebra two optional and increasing things like personal literacy. I think that's brilliant. I mean, I thought, you know, Algebra two should have been done. You let's know, let's talk about it. Ago, I'm, I'm, but, I'm with uh, you. I'm glad you brought us yeah, there. Because yeah. financial literacy, when you look at how many people are in a, a recycling, you know, uh, poverty, right? right. Uh, right. Generational poverty. And, you, and even those who aren't, who just all of a sudden end up with all this debt. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's the thing that really cripples our society. Look at how um, the national student debt discussion has really taken it. Well, it's all about financial literacy. I mean, people you know, go right. into debt because sometimes that's they right. don't understand or they feel forced. And just having that as a part of the curriculum, I think is huge. That's a good point there. I really appreciate that. And uh, Martha, um, you know, <laughs> I'm glad we're on this high school thing because it's interesting, this idea of Algebra two. There's one side of the population with a big, ah, it's got to go. And then the other side that says we should keep Algebra two, because if we're going to be in step with other states on our educational attainment, they're not dropping Algebra two. Why should we? Are we dumbing down things here? We're already dumbed down, Gene. Yeah. Only 16% of our high school juniors are proficient in math. Mm. That says to me, forget Algebra two. Let's do right. <laughs> add, subtract, <laughs> multiply, and divide I first. Laugh, but I'm not. Uh, yeah. That's what we need to do. Mm -hmm. Algebra two. Well, this got me thinking. You know, I took it, I guess, in high school. I have a PhD now. I have no idea what Algebra two is. Mm -hmm. So, but I can add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And I think that's where we need to go back and reevaluate. Now the schools are still going to be allowed and maybe even encouraged mm -hmm. to offer it. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're just striking it all together. Mm -hmm. But let's prioritize where are our kids and where do they need to go first? Right. Exactly. So interesting point on this too, Ed, is the idea of elective units versus forcing kids to do certain things. That could include trades, it could include, you know, if you have a specific idea of what you want to do in life. It's not a bad idea when you think about it. I, I'm curious where you are in the Algebra 2 versus not, and also picking elective units as, a, as, a, as an alternative. As the saying goes, you do what you did, you get what you got. 
Right. And so it's, it's really important to disrupt the system. We know what we've been doing yeah. hasn't been as effective as we'd liked it to be. So let's change it up a little bit. I think right. uh, Representative Romero, is, uh, Andreas Romero has done an exceptional job. I mean, he is a high school teacher himself. That's right. That's so, right. so he knows at the ground level what these students need. And he talks a lot about keeping these students engaged. And not every student is going to go to college. Right. Many of them will seek the, 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 the trade route. Yeah. And it's important to have those options. So we start focusing those students who don't want to go to college that's right. Give them other options that's so that right. they start thinking about and engaging more in, in the high school experience. That's if right. they can relate to what's being taught in high school, they're more, more likely going to attend the high school classes and, and, right. and graduate. So right. I think it's important. Again, Algebra two is important if that's the path that you're taking. But I don't know that every student out there needs Algebra two. And yeah. so, so I think Algebra two it, it is being offered. I think that was one of the amendments to the bill that sure. you know that it, that will be an option. Mm -hmm. And for those schools and for those student bodies, you know, the school districts will have the opportunity to include and possibly even mandate Algebra two for their student body. But I think that's one of the one of the positive things about right. this bill right. is that it does provide school districts options. That's a good point there too. The option bit is is really key. Um, STEM, Tom, we've heard about STEM for years, including this governor, but we're not really hearing STEM in this argument here. Have we walked away from STEM as, our, as the path forward or? Well, I'm, I'm not that as intimately familiar yeah. with, uh, you know, the, uh, with the legislation that's being suggested in Santa Fe Fair to enough. say where STEM is. Sure. Uh, but, you know, what I would like to be able to see to kind of go back to what uh, Mr. Perea was saying is, the ability to offer vocational education uh, as an as a pathway through, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we're I think right now the curriculum is really focused on okay, you're going to college as the right. next step, as right. opposed to you know what life starts as a next step. How's that? Right. And uh, so that's that's what I like about this particular legislation is that it offers that next step through the financial literacy aspect, and hopefully there can be some items in there if not already that really focuses on offering more of a vocational education Good option. There. And in fact, uh, on your point, Tom, just to kind of tie it down, those uh, electives can include what you mentioned uh, uh, about uh, financial literacy, but also fine arts, Military career preparation, that's I interesting. That was really good. Isn't that interesting? That, yeah. that, I think that meets us where we are. Uh, and for non-English uh, speakers, uh, non-English language classes, and, the and computer science, those are the other electives. That makes sense to me. Uh, do you guys do you know, it? As it a, does. I, I yeah. want to throw in one comment about the STEM. Please. Uh, because nationally, there are twice as many men in college in the STEM uh, area right. than, than the women. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to increase it, which we should, mm -hmm. uh, for those students that are on that path, as Tom says, mm -hmm. we need to pay attention to who we are encouraging. That's a good point And there. are we encouraging our girls to the same extent that we are our boys? And it's always a concern yeah. uh, because there are so many cultural taboos That's against, right. you know, girls don't That's do right. math or That's science. Right so forth. Time to so just wanted to, ma to right. make us aware of that. And in terms of these, Quickly, uh, what do they call uh, profiles uh, for graduation, Tom's point is very good. Not everybody's going to college. That's right. So they need to have two tracks on that at yeah. least. We're getting there. Sounds like we're getting there. Thanks again to all. Finally on the podcast this week, I wanted to share a recent Facebook Live interview that I really enjoyed. It's Gene Grant speaking with Sonia Gibson-Rankin, a law professor at the University of New Mexico. 
It's a casual conversation, but they get into some meaty topics, starting with the work that she's been doing on a tenure track at the university. Then the two move into the intersection of race and law enforcement, and the professor explains some of the systemic issues in criminal justice here in New Mexico and the U.S. as a whole. Another reason I found this conversation extremely interesting is Professor Gibson Rankin's knowledge of artificial intelligence and its growing influence in law enforcement, but also academia and everyday life. I hope you enjoy it too. But we're going to be having a very interesting conversation in the next 15 minutes or so with Sonia Gibson Rankin. She teaches in the fields of torts, family law, technology and law, and race and law at the University of New Mexico. She also does a lot of television appearances on things like the intersection of law enforcement and race. We'll talk about that as well here in just a little bit. But she's got quite the background. We're very pleased to have her at UNM, certainly. And Sonia, I am so pleased you were on a tenure track here. It's so interesting. Congratulations, first of all, so much. It means a lot in the African-American community locally and, and certainly in education circles. For a lot of folks who don't follow these things, so follow. tell us a bit about your background, what you've done at UNM leading up to now with Africana Studies and what a tenure track actually looks like. So sure, excited. sure. So thanks for having me. As always, I just, I love New Mexico in focus. And, and you, of course, Jean, you're Appreciate one of the very best, a complete jewel here in New Mexico. So I, um, I, my background, I'm a Jersey girl. I grew up in Jersey. I went to Morgan State University where I got a degree in computer science, uh, moved to Illinois where I then went to law school, University of Illinois College of Law. And from there, transitioned boy about about a little over twenty years ago to here to New Mexico. Um, had a great opportunity to kind of be a stay-at-home mom for a little bit, and then got some opportunities to start teaching in the community. And Dr. Sherry Burr here at the law school, who was then the acting director of Africana Studies, said, "Would you be interested in teaching a class on the civil rights movement?" Um, that was kind of my start into UNM. I'm ever so grateful to Dr. Burr. And then from there, I had um, about nine years where I was a lecturer and then senior lecturer out of Africana Studies. Mm -hmm. And along that time, I, I also had a chance to become the associate dean of University College, where I did a lot of fun things with first-year students, worked with new student orientation, worked with advising. Um, just got a really beautiful picture of how wonderful UNM is, not just at the Albuquerque campus, but also with our branches. Mm -hmm. um, but about five years ago, I got an opportunity to enter a tenure track position at the University of New Mexico School of Law. Um, you know, to tell you the truth, Gene, this has been a dream since I was in the third grade, right? I've always wanted to be a teacher. Yeah. And every time I'd enter a new level of education, I say, that's the kind of teacher I want to be. That's what I want to do. So I'm ever so grateful to UNM Law for, for this space. What tenure track means, though, is that a person um, works for a number of years publishing, teaching, performing service in the community. And after so many years, they're able to see if they're eligible for promotion and later then to see if they're or retention and then to see if they're eligible for promotion to being a tenured professor. It means that the five, six-year job interview is almost over. So that's the stage I'm at, Jean, is I'm still on this job interview. Nothing's done until the provost makes um, his decision this summer. But but we're we're nearing the end here of seeing think, if they think, might keep me. <laughs> I think UNM's got it figured out. I think the university's <laughs> got it figured out. They know what's going on there. Let's dive into some of the issue areas that uh, you spend time in because they're fascinating. 
First things first, we've had a number of situations, as you well know, just to tell the folks at home, and they well know too, mm-hmm. when it comes to the intersection, tragically, of, of law enforcement and race. We've got so many examples. It's so complicated. Mem- the Memphis situation is not like the Derek Chauvin situation, which is not right. like the, but somehow they all are. You know what I mean? It all adds up to the same thing. You've done a number of appearances on BBC television in the UK and here stateside as well. I'm not going to ask you, how do we fix this problem? That's not why you're going on television. But to let folks know that the sheer scope of the problem, my sense of you is you picked up a cudgel here. You feel it's important to really kind of get under the surface here and start to talk about these things in a different way. Am I on the right track here? Uh, Thank you for that, Gene. You're absolutely right. I think we're at a place where there are enough constant examples for the public to say, wait a minute. Right. If the situation keeps repeating itself, what is actually at the at the foundation here? So, so there are three major arguments as to why there's disproportionately um, representation of of Black Americans, of Black people in who are have been incarcerated or interaction with the police, um, Native Americans, Hispanics, depending on the types of communities. And there's one argument. One argument is, well, they just commit more crimes. That's why they have these more interactions. And and there are people who believe that and and they believe it with two different arguments. One, they're just criminally minded. That's why they're committing more crimes. But the other argument is, well, they just live in bad neighborhoods and that's why they commit more crimes. But that's just what they do. They commit more crimes. That's one argument. The second argument is, well, it's not that Black people in particular, just as a subtopic, are committing more crimes, Mm -hmm. but that there's just a few bad apples bad actors in the system. There's a, a racist cop or a racist judge or the racist neighbor who calls the police with this rise of SWAT, of you know swatting and things like that, or just right. a racist probation officer. And these bad apples and bad actors along the way are why there's disproportional um, representation. The mm-hmm. third argument is, well, we could stop talking about criminal justice and switch it to healthcare. And switch it to education and switch it to housing and switch it to banking and switch it to any other topics. And you'll keep seeing that maybe there's something deeper at play. Maybe it's not just it's not the people who are committing who are seen to commit these acts. Maybe it's not the bad apples. Maybe we're in some systems that people are operating in that lead to disproportionate impact. Interesting point there. Um, The bad apple thing has clung on or hung on for how many generations now and we're finally chipping away at that and uh, one more question on this one because I, I want to be uh, good on our time here the Memphis situation for a lot of folks of course involved six now African-American cops in that tragic you know death that happened there is there another wrinkle when it comes to when black men are participating in this system as well that we're trying to get at as well in, in our conversations about why these things happen well, it shows that the issue was never about the perpetrators. It was always about the systems at play. I mean, we're watching what happened in, in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you remember, we saw this happen in Baltimore with Freddie Gray, right? right? That there are some systems at play. There's this issue of power that has led individuals to believe even against people that look like them that no one's ever going to call or pause and say this this devaluation of the black body um, will not be held accountable right 
Isn't that something? It's really something. We'll see if there's yeah. some progress here. We need some leadership on this issue. <laughs> yeah. Inside yeah. law enforcement, it has to start there. Um, I'm very interested in where you're going with the intersection of technology and African-American community, certainly, but for all of us, you know, even in a, in a bigger place. I, I wonder if maybe in just a minute or so or, or less, you could just kind of, where are we on tech when it comes? People are hearing now this, this term chatbots. A lot of us don't know what that actually means, but there's a big kerfuffle inside higher education circles about this technology and the potential for, you know, some things we'll talk about here in a second. But what's the, what's the overall general landscape of, of where tech and race and law intersects at this point? Well, I think the chatbots are kind of catching our attention. Open AI is, is a website that's open to all of us to use. I, I check it out almost a couple times a week for all kinds right. of random topics. Um, so here's a fun thing that we did with, with the chatbot. It was my uncle's 80th birthday. My uncle is from Panama and my father asked the chatbot to please write a song for an 80 year old man born in Panama who loves to play dominoes. And then we sang the song that the chatbot created and it was a great song, right? Wow. It's pretty cool to just know that it, it's trying to pull together all of these ideas. We, we literally just kind of came up with that and I said, and it's really interesting because what it's doing is basically calling the internet to look up what answers could be. It's figuring out what a song is. It's figuring out what Panama means and where it is. It's figuring out what Domino's is right. and, and how that fits together. It's figuring out what an 80 year old thinks about and what does it mean to have obtained 80 years of life? It's pretty cool. Yeah. But in academia, we're starting to see some more changes. So you know, we're noticing that the chatbot or open AI has shown that it can pass some of these standardized tests that we've had in a lot of different spaces. It it showed that it wasn't too, too shabby at some different bar exam questions, and it shows that it's doing a pretty compelling job. I think I saw one in nursing. It, it passed the nursing exam and oh, wow. <laughs> an accounting exam. Some of these standardized tests, it is able to show some pretty... Um, some proficiency, some basic proficiency. Mm -hmm. And so now they're starting to ask the question in academia is what are we teaching students if there are machines that can supposedly think alike? Now, I was way over a minute, but the, the thing right. that stands out is we have to remember that although in our image, we saw a birthday song to an 80 year old, the computer just saw zeros and ones. Right. It doesn't actually understand at a deeper level what it has produced that we are um, taking in. Mm -hmm. And it's also producing lots of errors. Well, there you go on the error part too, that in that over time, that's gonna be a tricky thing to follow. Are you concerned about uh, students cheating with, with the, the help of, of this these technologies? I think it is very, um, <laughs> you know, students have figured out how to write answers in between fingers, put it on the inside of glasses, <laughs> you know, um, Right. If there will be an exam, there will be a desire or a concern of, of making sure that people are producing their own work and following um, following the ethical requirements and the honor code. But there is a little bit easy and it's going to require instructors to have to dig deeper mm -hmm. in terms of, of creating assignments. Um, you know, once upon a time, they were mad at spell check. <laughs> once yes. upon a time, they, you know, and think about this. People use all kinds of artificial intelligence when they run their paper through the editor feature in Microsoft Word, for example. 
help me, you know, did I hit all my commas correctly? Did I, is there a better word when you use the thesaurus? We have lots of things that are enhancing the work we produce. It's going to require instructors to dig a little deeper. Interesting points there. Hey, you wrote an article in 2021, I'm looking at here, or the title of it, Technology Tethered. Um, potential impact of untrustworthy, untrustworthy artificial intelligence in criminal justice risk assessment instruments. Uh, that's interesting. Like long titles in the law. <laughs> hey, you know, these, you know, when you're not a lawyer and you slog through a lot of legal uh, documents like I do, you learn <laughs> these titles can encompass a lot of things. Um, what did you mean by that? You know, some of us have read about the idea of facial recognition. And the technology at this point is not serving African-Americans well at this point. Not. What's going on? So what's happening in the criminal justice space is that there are different kinds of products being used in corrections for to decide if a person is eligible for parole or mm -hmm. probation. It's being used for pretrial sentencing. We've heard quite a bit of discussion about that here in the Bernalillo County about the Arnold tool that's in use here. Um, and there are these products being used. Some are pretty basic algorithms like the Arnold tool, but yeah. some in other jurisdictions are products like Compass that are third-party proprietary products where they do not disclose the data that they're using to compare individuals to. Huh. So that's where there's grave concern because of the propensity and potential for hacking for the potential for cyber attacks, for the understanding that sometimes people just enter data wrong, right? If, if someone transposes that the defendant was 19 instead of 91, well, you're going to start to skew the data. And mm -hmm. then there are just concerns that this AI, we don't know what it's actually going to produce as a final answer. And the technology is so advanced that even if you were to put a developer or a coder on the sta stand and say, why did it come up with this answer? We're at a position where it says we don't know because that's how advanced the AI is. It's thinking for itself in some ways, and we don't know the outcome. That's uh, that can a little stomach flutter. That last little bit you mentioned there. Um, you have another article in December's Family Law Quarterly. You mentioned opening your assisted reproductive technology class uh, with a simple question. I'm reading this, of course, uh, for your students. Would you make it to the future? Do you have a favorite response to that question? I, I love the question, first of all. That's pretty challenging, which is what higher ed is supposed to be. I'm curious what you've gotten for feedback from uh, students on that. Well, I, I put some of the stuff in the article, but some students will say, well, my jump shot's not great, so I don't know if that would make it. Or I wear glasses. I don't think someone's going to pick someone with um, who's nearsighted in the future. Or, oh, gosh, my braces years. Would that make it to the future? And I had a student who said, I'm not sure if someone would pick my race in the future. Oh, wow. I don't know if, huh. if given the opportunity, would someone pick the struggles and the systemic oppression that my history has faced for their people in the future? And so as we look at the rise of in vitro fertilization, of people picking donor ovas and do donor sperm and, and making the people of the future, would you make it to the future? Think about you and all your components um, would someone say that's just the kind of people that we need in the future? And um, mm -hmm. we're watching what's happening internationally where people are um, selecting not to have ch children with Down syndrome. We're watching people um, yeah. think about what, what do they think about their child being born deaf and being part of the deaf community and different aspects of it. So we're starting to watch what, it, what integral parts do we want in the future and what are we doing to make sure that we still have a unique, complex society? Mm -hmm. Hey, last question. Um, we got about 
I'll give you two minutes on this. We have three minutes total, but just want to get you out the door. Uh, getting it closer to home, you mentioned the Arnold tool being used by um, district attorneys and others and you know law enforcement folks here. Is there something you would like to New Mexicans to know about, I guess about a warning, particularly our legislature about how we should consider AI in our everyday lives right now? Is there, are there policy questions that our local folks should be having debates about right now when it comes to security, privacy of, of New Mexico and New Mexico citizens? I, I am gravely concerned about privacy and security. I mean, um, what stands out is the solar winds attack hit so many aspects of the federal government and they didn't know about it for over nine months. Wow. Um, if that's happening at the federal level, what do you think has been happening at the local level? We've already seen ransomware attacks at some very critical places here in New Mexico, places that don't have the economic resources to pay those mm -hmm. kind of ransoms. Um, and, we also, and we also saw in California, there was an attack that led to the release of sealed children's documents in court. So we really, really have to be gravely concerned about, there was an attack on the Odyssey program okay. um, system that where the material was filed. So we really have to be concerned about what is being put into these um, cloud sources, what, how they're being secured and ensuring that we have proper backups. I think this is right now, the attention is on criminal justice and, audit and Arnold tool, but mm -hmm. I would encourage New Mexicans to be saying, well, what's happening over in healthcare? What's mm -hmm. happening in the banks and lending? What's happening in jobs and hiring um, practices at companies in New Mexico? That's a really good question. Hopefully my personal dream is there's a working group formed amongst our legislature to have some kind of permanent place where folks can start to consider these things. Uh, before the wave hits, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. Sonia Gibson-Rankin, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a big deal for us over at New Mexico PBS to be able to talk to you. We've been talking about you for a long time, <laughs> watching you really blazing a trail across the world. We know you get young minds to help shape and form right now, so we're going to let you go. <laughs> and I would love to talk to you at some point more one-on-one -on -one about these issues about security and safety when it comes to AI and chatbots and things down the road. Really got to get the public up to speed here. That's a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Got to know what you got to demand. That's right. <laughs> Sonia, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the podcast this week. Don't forget to check out our social media pages throughout the week as legislative action picks up in the roundhouse. Check out our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll be posting updates and other news items leading up to our show Friday night at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio. For Monday, March 6th, 2023, this is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.